And we'll begin uh, reading in verse 15. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that we can come to your word and know that it is trustworthy and it is true. Father, that it is living and active. And Father, there may be those of us here who, who feel dead and passive, but your word is living and active. And we pray that through your living and active word, we would behold Christ tonight, that your spirit would show us Jesus afresh. In his name, amen. Amen. A few years ago, uh, the Guardian newspaper published an article which was about the attitude of the British public towards the church. And the article had a headline which started like this. Three words, church in crisis. Church in crisis. And obviously it's not particularly noteworthy that a newspaper would paint the church negatively. But what I find interesting is that probably many of us here, for one reason or another, would probably agree with that statement. That for one reason or another, the church in our part of the world today seems to be in a crisis. 
Um, it might be that um, we're struggling to reach the lost. Or there's problems that just feel overwhelming outside the church, but not just outside the church, also sometimes inside the church. Maybe we're wearied by criticisms from the world. But if we're honest, we know that in theory, we're on the winning side. We know that. But day-to-day reality sometimes feel like we're on the losing side, doesn't it? But the church that we see in Scripture couldn't be more different than that. Here's how uh, the late John Stott described the early church. He said, It's impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it and which stands out in relief against a rather superficial religion that often passes for Christianity today. There was no defeatism about the early Christians. Rather, they spoke of victory. Victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. This was the vocabulary of those first followers of the risen Lord. Victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. Are those four words, words you'd associate with the church today? Are they words that you'd associate with the state of your own Christian walk over recent months? Are they words you'd associate with the state of your heart tonight? Victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. For me, the answer to all those questions personally is, is no. And I think often our problem isn't with the grasp of the crucifixion. I think often we know what Jesus' death means. We know the difference it makes in our lives. We know that we're forgiven of our sins. We know that we have access to the presence of God. We know the basis of our adoption. Often, more often than not, I think, our problem isn't grasping the crucifixion, but the resurrection. Because where for the early church, the resurrection was a living reality, often for us it just feels like an abstract concept. Maybe it's just me. We know in our heads that Jesus is victorious, but in our hearts and in our lives, we struggle to actually experience the reality of that victory. We know in theory that the strife is over and the battle is done, but in often, in practice, we don't live like it often. And so what we need is for the resurrection to actually make a difference in our lives, in the big things and in the small things. What difference does the resurrection make to how you interpret the six o'clock news? What difference does the resurrection make to how you interpret the struggles you're facing in your own life? But also, what difference does the resurrection make to how you eat your cereal on a morning? What difference does the resurrection make to how your head hits the pillow at night? As we look at this, this glorious passage in Ephesians, and I'd love you to follow along with me, We're going to think tonight about what it means to be made alive together with Christ. Alive together with Christ. And to do that, I just want to see two two really simple things in, in this passage. The first is this, that Christ was dead, but now is alive. Christ was dead, but now is alive. We read from verse 15, where Paul starts his prayer, but I want to pick up Um, to start with the final thing that he prays for the Ephesians to grasp, which starts in verse 19. He prays for the Ephesian church to grasp what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul's praying here for the Ephesian church to experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And the prime example of that power that he chooses to demonstrate that is that Christ, though he really did die and really did pay for our sins on that cross, he really did rise again by the power of God. That Christ was dead, but now is alive. And that shows us the power of God. Why does he use the resurrection as a prime example of God's power? There are plenty of other things he could pick. Um, Well, I think it's because since page three of the Bible, death has been humanity's greatest enemy. No enemy has been greater than death. And barring a few miraculous interventions, every human being, no matter how intelligent or moral or wealthy or healthy they've been, every human being has died. Since page three of the Bible, death has been the seemingly undefeatable enemy until God raised Jesus from the dead. So the same God who breathed stars into existence breathed into the lungs of his dead son to raise him to life and to show that his life is immeasurably greater than death. And yet in this passage, it's not just in raising Jesus from the dead that God's shown his power. It's, that's actually a domino Um, The first of three events. If you look again, um, verse 20, the power that he worked in Christ when he, number one, raised him from the dead, and then two, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name. And then verse 23, he also put everything under his feet and made him his head over all things. And so God's power is shown in raising Jesus from the lowest place of death to the highest place of heaven through resurrection, ascension, and then enthronement. And now, verse 21, there isn't any ruler or authority or power or dominion or name that is over Jesus Christ. He stands not just, what does it say in the ESV? It doesn't say just a little bit above, far above, far above every human power, far above every spiritual power. And so when sinful men crucified Jesus... They effectively pronounced a judgment over him. And that judgment read blasphemer, rebel, and scum of the earth. But when the father resurrected Jesus, he completely reversed that verdict so that now for all time, it reads Savior, Lord, and King of heaven. By the time we get to the end of verse 23, we're a long way from the crucifixion and the shame of the crucifixion. And so now, verse 22, God has put all things under his feet and has given him his head over over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ fills, he's over all, but he also fills all in all. So he's the, the sustenance of all things, but also his sovereign power pervades all of reality. The, um, the Dutch statesman and theologian Abraham Kuyper once said that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, 
does not cry, mine. And according to verse 22, Christ cries mine in a very special way over his church, his body. So the church here is the fullness of Christ, which probably doesn't mean that the church fills Christ, but that Christ fills the church by his spirit in a very special way. Christ doesn't just rule over the church like he rules over everything else. He lives by his spirit in the church. Talk about being on the winning team. And so the question is not, is this true? The question is, will we live like this is true? There was a a Japanese soldier in World War II um, called Hiru Onoda, who was stationed in the Philippines. Um, And he was given two orders. He was given the orders to fight off the Americans advancing and never to surrender. Um, And after a while, Onoda somehow ended up being separated from the rest of the Japanese troops in the Philippines. It was just him and a handful of others, and they were living in a forest in the Philippines. And so when the war finished and Japan surrendered, he wasn't with all the rest of the troops. And so what the Japanese army did was they sent a note up into the forest to tell him to surrender. But he'd been given orders never to surrender. And so he convinced himself that this was just a tactic from the Americans to cause him to surrender, to give up. And amazingly, for the next 29 years of his life, Hiru Onoda lived in the forests of the Philippines, acting as if he was still at war. He went around killing local farmers. He had shootouts with the police. He refused to surrender. And it wasn't until 1974 that his retired commanding officer, who was now selling books for a living, had to fly from Japan to the Philippines to go actually see him, to convince him, you do actually need to surrender. The war actually is over. Now, the reality was that World War II ended in 1945. But for 29 years, Hiru Onoda didn't live like it. He didn't actually believe this earth-changing news that he'd been told. And in the same way, we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we actually believe that Ephesians 1, 19 to 23 is true and stop believing that somehow we might be on the losing side. Do you really live like Jesus is the eternal king reigning over all? Do you really believe that despite all that's going on in the world, all the moral decay that we see, Actually, one day the risen Lord Jesus will make all things new and only righteousness will dwell on that earth. Do you really believe that right now the world isn't being ruled by politicians or Hollywood or even Satan, but in an infinitely greater way it's being ruled by the risen Jesus and everything is going his way? Let's not be like Hiru Onoda who refused to orient his thoughts and his life around reality because it is reality instead let's be like those who truly believe this earth-changing news and who let it change everything from how we make sense of the six o'clock news to how we make sense of our own lives that's the first point to see that christ was dead but now is alive as we come to chapter two my second point of two is this We were dead, but now we are alive together with Christ. And I think that because Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is is probably the most famous part of Ephesians that we know, 
often it's easy to miss the flow of Paul's argument. So just look what Paul does here. He said in 119 we saw, or 120, he's talked about um, the might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then expands on his exaltation. But then that flows straight into chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so Paul's saying that just as Jesus Christ was dead, so we are dead. But while Christ's death was physical, ours is spiritual. And so look again at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So verse 1, we were dead, he says, in two things, our trespasses and our sins. So the word trespass here is a, a kind of false step, a crossing of a boundary. So if someone trespasses on your property. The second word, that, that depicts rebellion. If someone does that. The second word here is sins, which is a kind of falling short of a standard, a missing of a mark, like shooting an arrow at a target and missing. So if trespassers depicts rebellion, sins reflects failure. And so he basically says that we were rebels and failures, and our rebellion and our failure was rooted in this fact that we were spiritually dead. And if that wasn't enough, our, in our state of deadness were also two other things. He says we were enslaved. So if you look at um, verse 2, he says we followed the course of this world. Then again in verse 2, he says we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. So we're enslaved to the world. We're enslaved to Satan. Then finally, in verse 3, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we were effectively enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It doesn't get much worse than that. That's slavery from things outside of us and things inside of us. But not just that. He says, secondly here, that we were also condemned in our death. The end of verse 3, he says, because we were dead by nature, we were children of wrath, which is God's righteous hostility against evil. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So everyone then outside of Jesus is dead and so enslaved and condemned. And he says that's true for all of us here before we were Christians. And it's true for all of us here who aren't Christians. All mankind. And you might say at this point that that isn't a very flattering picture of humanity. At which point I'd say you're right. It isn't a very flattering picture of humanity. But I think it is a realistic one which is the important thing. Imagine for a second that I could record all of your thoughts, the things that go on in your heart and your mind, even just over a week. If I could somehow record that and capture those things in video format, all the things that you think about in your mind, all the things that your heart desires, all the things that you, you don't say out loud because out loud you know how they look, the things that you even wish weren't there. Imagine then that we got all your friends and family and we sat them here in Hoylake Evangelical and I managed to, to play the video on the screen. What would you do? Would you sit comfortably 
and wait for your friends and family to pat you on the back. I wouldn't. I think I'd be straight out those back doors or this one because it's a bit nearer and quicker. Because without Jesus, we are both rebels and failures. We were spiritually dead or we might still be spiritually dead to the life of God. And so tragically, we're enslaved and rightfully, we're condemned. But praise God that Ephesians 2 doesn't end after verse 3. Because in the rest of the passage, we see two things. What God has done and why he's done it. So he's made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, but now we're alive together with Christ. So we'll look at now what he's done and why he's done it. So what has he done? He has, verses 4 to 6, made us alive together with Christ. So when we were without life, when we were without hope, we read those two precious words at the start of verse 4, which are the turning point of the passage And I pray the turning point in our lives. But God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if death is our problem, then salvation cannot just be about making bad people into good people. If death is a problem, then salvation must be at some root level making dead people living people. And we see here that what God has done to us is the same thing that he did to Christ. We saw in chapter 1 that Christ had been made alive and raised up and seated at God's right hand. And now in chapter 2, what's happened to us, we've been, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So Christians then are not just people who believe in their heads that Jesus was raised from the dead. Christians are people who have the resurrection life of Jesus pulsing through their veins we have been made alive together with him raised up with him and made to sit in the heavenly places with him we are united by faith to a risen savior isn't that amazing isn't that just i could sit down that's just amazing that god would take a dead man crucified as a criminal And raise him up as Lord and King. But not just that, that God would take dead sinners like us and raise us up and seat us with him. And I think the only thing that I could think of that is as amazing as what God has done here is why he's done it. That's the second thing to see here. In these verses, we see some, I think, key words which explain why God has saved us. And if you look, All of them are to do with God's character. Not one of them is to do with ours. So we see, um, verse 4, we see the word mercy, God being rich in mercy. Then because of the great love with which he's loved us. So we've got mercy, we've got love, and then skip down to verse 7. We see the word there, kindness, the riches of his grace in kindness. So mercy, love, kindness, and the biggest word of all, grace. His undeserved favor. In verse 5 and verse 8, we get the same positive refrain. By grace you have been saved. 
And then in 8 and 9, we're told the same thing, but negatively. He says it twice, just in case we missed it. Verse 8, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And then verse 9, this is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the picture Paul is painting for us of salvation is not of us kind of drowning at sea where God throws a life ring to us and tells us to grab on so that he does a lot but we do a bit. The picture that Paul is painting in these verses puts us dead and buried at the bottom of the sea. And God comes for us, raises us up, and breathes new life into us. That's the picture of salvation that he's given us. It is all God's work. And that's why he says in the final verse, verse 10, he says that we are God's workmanship. God's work. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And I think that the nail in the coffin, which is the wrong analogy because that's of death, but you know what I mean. The nail in the coffin for me, which really drives this home, um, is the word created there. Created in Christ Jesus. That's an interesting word to use. He's presenting salvation, which we see throughout the New Testament, as a kind of recreation, a new creation. And so just like we didn't create ourselves when we were made alive physically, at least I didn't, it just happened to me, so we don't create ourselves when we're made alive physically, it happens to us. God does it. And so if it's all God's work, that means he alone can boast. And according to verse 7, I think this is, Kind of, if you want a postcard verse of why has God raised us from the dead, it's verse 7. We see with crystal clarity that he was going to boast and he will boast for all eternity. Verse 7, why did God save us? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So in raising Christ from the dead, remember... Chapter 1, God showed the immeasurable greatness of his power. Here in chapter 2, in raising us, God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace. And that's because where Jesus never deserved death in the first place, we don't deserve to be alive. But God raises us to be alive forever. And so for all eternity, we will be, if we're Christians here, we will be living evidence of God's grace. If you're a Christian, God will forever, I don't know what you think the new creation is going to be like, but in the new creation, God is going to forever point at you as evidence that he is gracious. I don't know how that makes you feel. You, not the person sitting next to you, and not even the person that you wish you were, but you know you're not. God will point to you as evidence that he is gracious. Doesn't that give your life, I don't know what you're going through tonight, but I don't know what's coming up. Doesn't that give your life such dignity? Sickness or sorrow. Absolute dignity that forever your life will be used to give glory to your creator and your redeemer. Because he's done a work. And so to close, I'd love just to think about two implications of these verses. The first is this, um, that we need to walk in good works. Walk in good works. So I don't know if you noticed another, there's so many amazing things in this passage, which I don't have time to go into, but one of the the amazing things I found about this passage is it starts 
in chapter 2, verse 1, with us walking in trespasses and sins. By the time we get to verse 10, we're walking again, but in good works that God has prepared beforehand. And so there's a deliberate contrast here and complete reversal that all comes out of the fact we've been made alive together with Christ. And the logic is this, if you are a new creation, then live like it. In Colossians 3, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And he goes on to to call us to put to death those earthly things, things like sexual morality, anger, and malice, and instead to pursue what is heavenly, compassion, kindness, patience. And so the question he's getting at is this, do you live like someone who has been made alive together with Christ? Do you live like someone who's been made alive together with Christ? The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, put it like this. He said that Christ Jesus did not come into the world that you might continue in sin and escape the penalty of it. Christ isn't just a kind of get out of hell free card. He says, we, we do not mean salvation only from hell. We preach salvation from sin. I love this image. A man that is drowning in water cannot say that he is saved from water while he's sinking in it. A man who's drowning in water cannot say he's saved from water while he's sinking in it. Do you live like someone who has been saved from sin or someone who's still drowning in it? Do you live like someone who's been made alive together with Christ? Because if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to actually live like people who are united to a resurrected Savior. We need his life pulsing through our veins. And so it's not just that Jesus has been raised and so now we should try really hard because Jesus has been raised to live good lives. It's that we've been raised with Christ Jesus and the same power which raised him from the dead lives in us. And so how can we do anything else but live new lives? The second implication is this, and I'll finish here. We need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Ultimately, that's what Paul's prayer is here. Because if this is true, if everything that we've just looked at is true, then it can't be just a dim flame flickering in the back of our minds somewhere. This has to be a blazing sunlight captivating our hearts day by day. The resurrection isn't just an abstract concept of something that happened 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away. It's meant to be a living reality that affects everything. Everything. The resurrection, if you have a job, affects your job. The resurrection impacts your job. Because you are free to try your best and to give it your best effort without needing to solve every last one of the world's problems. Because you know one day the risen Savior is going to do that. If you're retired, the resurrection affects your retirement. Because it means you can make the most of every last opportunity to bring the life of heaven to earth rather than wasting away your days in earthly pleasures. The resurrection affects evangelism. That's good news. Because you know, or you can know, that the powers of your persuasion are never going to do anything to raise dead people to life. But so often we act like it, it does rely on that. 
But actually, if we truly believe the resurrection, we know that only Jesus can do that. And so we can try, we can invite, we can love people freely without needing anything back, trusting them to the Lord's hands. When you eat your cereal on a morning and think about the day ahead, you can know that whatever the world is going to throw at you, Jesus is alive and reigning, and you have been made alive together with him, and nothing can change that. When your head hits a pillow at night, whatever has happened that day, whether it's a child's tantrum or whether it's a cancer diagnosis, you can know that Jesus is alive and reigning, and you have been made alive together with him, and nothing can change that. And so let's be honest with ourselves tonight. What is determining the day-to-day state of your heart? What is determining the day-to-day state of your heart? Is it the fact that you're united to the risen Christ? Or is it the list of things that you've got to do today or tomorrow? Let's seek and pray for our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to these realities. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you that whoever you are and whatever you have done in your life, whether you've been coming for months or you've just walked in off the street because it started raining a minute ago, Jesus stands before you tonight and he offers you nothing short of life. Life, if you will only turn from your sin and put your faith in him, the one who died to take away your sin, the one who lived a perfect life and then died to take away your sin and then was raised so that for all who come to him, they can have new life. You can have new life. And I'm sure that there are those of us tonight who've been walking with the Lord for a while or maybe not that long and we're struggling and no one else might know about it, but we know that we're struggling. And I'm, I'm sure about that because I think I'm one of those people. You could be in a season of suffering, of spiritual dryness, of loneliness, and of doubt. But wherever you are tonight, my question as we close is this. Do you believe that God is powerful enough and gracious enough to bring you fresh life tonight? Or having raised you from death to life, do you think that he's now going to leave you to run the race on your own? If he is powerful enough to make Christ alive and gracious enough to make you alive together with Christ, then why are you doubting his power or his grace in your life tonight? And so we live day by day with this spiritual resurrection at the forefront of our hearts, believing that he has enough power and enough grace for us every day. And we do it knowing that one day we won't just be spiritually resurrected, but physically resurrected. And on that day, the Guardian headlines, I guarantee you, is not going to begin church in crisis. Because on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. And because we have been made alive together with Christ, on that day we will forever celebrate the reality of our victory, conquest, triumph, and overcoming in him. Let's pray again before we sing.